I shared first hour that in any given church there is quite a range of perspectives on the Holy Spirit. There are all kinds of different viewpoints that people have that they bring to a discussion of a, a look at the Holy Spirit of the living God. I encourage you this morning, whatever your perspective is, to just lay it on the table, sit before Jesus, and hear from Him. And let's see what He has to say. And by the way, we will not even come close to covering all that there is to cover on this topic. Thankfully, Jesus will cover much of this throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. We will hear a lot about the Holy Spirit from the mouth of Christ Himself, which will give us great understanding. And we'll delve into those things as they come before us. This morning, we're just going to deal with one section as Jesus begins to unveil something amazing to us. Something I believe is critical for our ability to function as His people, both as individuals and as a larger church fellowship. So John chapter 7, verse 37, we'll begin there. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's John's commentary on living water. Verse 40 says, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Now, we've talked about this, the prophet and the Christ. Remember that Israel had some some confusion over all this. Some believed that there was going to come Elijah, and then there would be the prophet, and then there would be the Messiah, as opposed to the coming of one like Elijah, followed by the Christ, who is the prophet. The prophet of Deuteronomy 18 that Moses says would come from their own people. That prophet is Messiah. Messiah is the prophet. But the people are confused. They're trying to work this out. We can give them a little grace. They were on that side of the cross. So they only had what the Hebrew prophets had said and they were trying to figure it out. So there was a division. It says that some were saying in verse 41, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is He? And where does it say that Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, this Messiah, would come out out of Nazareth? Has not the Scripture said, verse 42, The Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of Him. Some of them wanted to seize Him, but no one laid hands on Him. Jesus sure can stir it up. And He did on that day. And yes, Christ causes division. Oh, not division in a church. Not when a people gather around Jesus as Lord and Savior. There should be no division there. But He causes division in that so many people have so many different viewpoints of who Jesus is. Of what He came to do. And there's still confusion. Even today, what's amazing is though people are divided, they're still talking about Him. You know, people can't stop talking about Jesus. He is the lone figure in all of history who causes the most discussion. That's our Jesus. But I want to draw back and think about what He said on that last day of the feast. And let's ask God to to help us with this. Father, we pray now Your Spirit would teach us of Your Spirit. We ask You, Lord Jesus, to make clear to us 
some things that may be cloudy. We pray, Lord, that You will reveal Your desire, Your will, Your purposes, Lord, Your nature to us even more so today. And as You reveal, Lord, may we exemplify. May we follow. May we live for Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. The last day of the feast. Picture of a pitcher. I want to give you a picture of a pitcher this morning. A golden pitcher. A beautifully handcrafted golden pitcher carried along in cheerful parade by linen-robed priests as they made their way out of the temple. Masses of happy onlookers watched. This, this was a feast, a time in Israel of great celebration. A time of great joy. This was not a solemn procession. No, these priests wearing their linen robes walked with this picture out of the temple, down the southern steps, down a, a rocky footpath that would lead them to the southern end of the city of David. And down there in the southern end of the city of David, they would gather around a pool, the pool of Siloam. At the pool of Siloam, the priest would take that golden pitcher, dip it down in the water, fill it up, and begin the procession back up to the Temple Mount. On the way, they would sing the Hallel songs. That is Psalm 113 through 118. Praising God all the way as the people joined in, carrying that golden pitcher filled with water from the Gihon Spring that bubbled up in the pool of Siloam. And then they would return and come into the temple courts. Once they got there, they went straight to the altar. At the altar, while they continued to sing, they would take that pitcher full of water and pour it into a silver cup that was mounted there on the western side of the altar itself. While they poured the water, they recited this joyful prayer, Isaiah 12, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that His name is exalted. It's called the Festival of Water Libation part of a greater feast time there in Israel. And that festival of water libation would bring to mind to all the Jewish people water from the rock. God's provision of water from the rock in the desert. The glad ceremony was carried out every morning at dawn during the Feast of Tabernacles. So within the larger Feast of Tabernacles is the festival of water libation. The Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot in the Hebrew. We've talked about Sukkot a few times before. It's mentioned many times in Scripture. In fact, it is mentioned more than any other feast of Israel in the Bible. It is Israel's greatest feast. One of three pilgrimage feasts, but this is the one the kids would love the most, the adults would enjoy. It was like a week-long party. And you heard me right. It's Israel's greatest feast. Greater than Passover. Greater than Pentecost, or what the Jews called Shavuot. Now along with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a week-long ceremony or or time, along with uh, Pentecost and Shavuot, 
Sukkot was one of those three pilgrimage feasts, which meant every male in Israel is required to go up to Jerusalem three times a year for those feasts. There are seven feasts altogether, but three of them were compulsory. You had to go if you happened to be a male Jew. And this one was the most fun. This is the one that no one had to, you know, drag their feet to go to. The Jewish people looked forward to it. It was a celebration. Listen to how God even describes this. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verse 13, you shall celebrate the Feast of Booths, Sukkot. Seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat, and you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. In other words, everybody. He says, seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce, in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful, or literally, so you'll be exceedingly joyful. I like the word exceedingly. It's hard to say it without smiling. Try it. Exceedingly. (laughs) And they were exceedingly joyful during this feast. And at dawn, with the water libation process going on, at first when I was thinking through this, I thought about, you know, they're going down to get the water and coming up. It's probably a solemn thing. And the more I read on it, the more I saw, no, this is full-blown worship time. The people singing praises and glorifying God, thanking Him for the harvest, looking forward, looking back. In fact, this feast still has three implications. It's still celebrated annually in the land of Israel. It was even celebrated celebrated during the diaspora. That is when the Jews were dispersed throughout the world. They still kept this feast. It has three implications. A future implication, which we just talked about in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 14 says it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. So it has a future view to the kingdom, and and the Jewish people would celebrate it that way. They still do. It still looks ahead to the coming kingdom, a feast that will be celebrated by the whole world during that thousand-year reign of Christ Jesus. So future implication. It has a present implication in that it's also called the Feast of Ingathering. So it's a harvest time. It's Thanksgiving Jewish style. You know, we do it in November and we do Thanksgiving and we do turkeys and we're starting to do decorations and most people are looking to Black Friday and Christmas and the whole, the whole racket. The Jewish people just celebrate the ingathering of the harvest. Exodus 34.22, you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks that is the first fruits of the wheat harvest, that's Shavuot. And the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year, that's Sukkot. Celebrate the first harvest, celebrate the last. Whatever you do, you can hear the Lord saying, celebrate. Celebrate how, Lord? Celebrate my provision. Do you all do that? Do you celebrate the provision of the Lord in your lives? I think so often, every time we pray over a meal... You know, I grew up with the, with the, you said grace at every single meal. And if you had a bite of rice before you said grace, oh, you were in trouble. And in fact, you were the one who had to pray. Right? I think maybe I missed the understanding of this thing. 
that not only do you have to pray, you get to pray, and not only do you get to pray, but you get to thank Him for every bite of food that goes in your mouth. You get to thank Him for the clothes on your back. You get to thank Him you've got a roof over your head and provision constant and daily. Don't forget what we have comes from Him. Celebrate that. And so they do. Looking ahead to the kingdom, looking at the present celebration of the ingathering of harvest, and Sukkot looked to the past. This is why Sukkot, the festival of booths, the feast of tabernacles, was celebrated. They would build these booths. Remember we've talked about this. They would have this massive annual camp out. Everybody building little shelters and during the week of the celebration just move into the shelter or they would eat meals in the shelter and truly enjoy their time commemorating the 40-year journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness. Living in booths, living in tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23, verse 34. says, On the 15th of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. Jesus loved a feast. And we've seen this, and we'll see this more in John. It just seems like every time the dinner bell is rung, Jesus is there. You know, He always showed up right in time for the evening meal. He loved a good feast. He went to all the feasts. He showed up at the feasts. And yet here in John chapter 7, when His brothers chide Him, and goad him to go up to Jerusalem to present himself as Messiah. If in fact you're the Messiah, see, they didn't believe in him yet. And so they, they chided him, go up to Jerusalem. It's, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. What, what better time to proclaim that you're the Messiah? I mean, if you really are, go up. And Jesus did not. Not at first. He hung back. If you look back in verse 6 of chapter 7, Jesus responded to his brothers and said, My time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Oh wait, you mean people get mad at you, Jesus, because you call out sin? (laughs) I'm glad that doesn't happen today. That's why, by the way, anytime you try and uphold any type of biblical standard, the world gets angry. Because the world doesn't like evil to be illuminated. doesn't want to be known for what's really going on behind the scenes. Well, Jesus said, that's why the world hates me. He said, go up to the feast yourselves, verse 8. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. See, Jesus loves a good feast, but Jesus also knows his time. He's perfect in His timing. And at that time, He knew He still had six months to go. From this point, John chapter 7, there's still 180 days until the cross. And He can't spring too early what's about to happen, what's about to come. You see, what John makes very clear to us is Jesus was in complete control of His destiny. He was in complete control of the exact timing, even of His crucifixion, which is stunning. It's marvelous. We talked about this Wednesday a week ago. He knew the time. He fit into the time. And He worked all of Israel, the Jewish leaders, the Romans, everyone else, into His 
pattern into his prepared time. He knew the time. But he loved a good feast. Besides the fact it's a pilgrimage feast, right? All male Jews required to go up. So if Jesus doesn't go up, I mean, he, he kept the law fully in himself. Would there be a law violation if he didn't go? Well, Jesus did go. He just didn't go the way his brothers wanted him to. I'm not going up. Not your way. Verse 10. When his brothers had gone up to the feast, he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Jesus goes up in the shadows. Jesus slides into Jerusalem surreptitiously. He is unknown, at least it's unknown that he's actually there. He's not making a big splash. He had made a big splash the last time in healing the lame man by the pool, but this time he's keeping it quiet. It's all on the down low. And it tells me something about the nature of Jesus. He never went in for human marketing. He never sought publicity. He he never went after advertising Himself as the Messiah. In fact, by all accounts, Jesus shunned self-promotion. And we see this time and time again. Isaiah said Messiah would, by the way. Isaiah 42, verse 2. The prophet said He will not cry out or raise His voice, nor make His voice heard in the street. That's Messiah. He's not going to promote self. He's not going to be walking around with a placard. I am Messiah, follow me. You know, He's not going to do that. That is not the character and nature of Jesus, and it's something I think we Christians can all too easily forget. You all know we were required by the county not to advertise our presence in the barn on the Gilmore's property for the first 11 years. Don't tell people you're there. I'm like, how do you grow a church without advertising? And for 11 years, God showed us how. And far better than advertising, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but far better than self-promotion is where the Spirit is at work. I, I love the church. And I love my fellow Christians. And I really, it's difficult for me when I'm teaching and speaking to speak out about what I see going on in the church because I don't want to sound like I'm opposed to the church. Or like I think the bridge is it. We're not. we got plenty of errors in ourselves that, that the Lord is working on. Plenty of sanctification needs to take place right here. But I look out at the larger church and I think, man, there is far too much self-promotion. Way too much advertising. Be forewarned. The Bible tells us this, 2 Timothy 3, 5. In the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And then Paul gives a great list that follows that. He says in verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he says, and you all are probably familiar with this, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. And as I've thought through that verse and chewed on it, what does that form of godliness look like? Well, it looks an awful lot like some churches. You've got the steeple, you've got the big building, you've got the banners out, you've got, you know, you're doing your thing and you're, you're promoting, you're in the yellow pages, you got signs up, look at us, here we are, we're the place, you know, all of this going on. And I think, that, that looks like church. But does it deny the power of God? 
One of the most beautiful things about being constrained as we were from advertising is that none of you are here because you saw a sign. How do you know that, Rick? Because we didn't have a sign and never have had a sign. We still don't have a sign. Well, we got that little plastic one out there. That's nice. (laughs) My friends, there's a form of godliness, a picture, a portrait of religion without power. Why? Because when I promote myself, I am left to run solely on my power. When I say, look at me, look at what I can do, watch me, what I'm saying is, check it out. i got some strength in me and I can show you. And that's not Jesus. And it never was. We will not effectively impact the world by way of self-promotion. No. We need a far greater power than that. So Jesus goes up quietly. He goes up covertly, which makes what He did at the end of the feast all the more intriguing. It's the eighth day. John tells us the great day of the feast. And something, you need to know this, something took place in the water libation festival that was different on that day than any other day. The priest made the same joyful trek with the same golden pitcher in the same linen robes from the temple down the same southern steps all the way down to the same pool of Siloam. They took the same pitcher and went to dip it as they had before but skipped the water. If you were there, you'd say, hey, 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 guys, you didn't put anything in the pitcher. They would just scoop up air. They'd head back up to the temple, singing the Hallel Psalms again. This time they came to the altar and they went to pour, but of course nothing came out. On that eighth day, the great day of the feast, as they tipped that pitcher over, the priests had a different verse that they quoted. I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 43. And the people would sing hallelujah. But at that moment, at this feast, a voice cried out in the crowd, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now I think you could have heard a pin drop. As all the people began to turn, and look how inappropriate in the middle of church... To blurt out something like that? Besides, so much for flying under the radar, Jesus. I don't go up to this feast because it's not my time. Well, it's going to be your time now. I mean, he just blurts it out. I thought Jesus shunned self-promotion. And if that's not self-promotion, I don't know what is. Listen. Jesus never promoted Himself except where eternity was at stake. He only promoted Himself to a people for whom eternity was at stake. I want you to notice some things here. Amazing. John says Jesus cried out in verse 37. Jesus stood and cried out. The word in the Greek, it's a great word, kradzo. It even sounds like cried out. Kradzo. It means to cry aloud, to raise your voice. It's what a parent would do when your child goes running into the street blindly. Stop! Get back! 
over it. What do you, you know? It's what an evangelist would do if he wanted to get people's attention, to cause people to stop, to say, listen up! Pay attention! I want everybody to hear me. It's what John the Baptist did. John chapter 1 verse 15. He testified about Jesus and cried out, Kradzo, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now here's the thing. Only John the Apostle uses the word Kradzo, cried out, to describe Jesus' teaching in the temple. Only John. And then only three times. That phrase is never used of Jesus except in John chapter 7 verse 28. So a little earlier on, in fact, midway through the feast, John chapter 7 verse 28 says, Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Jesus cried out there in the temple. The second time John uses the word to speak of Jesus' teaching was right here in John 7, 37, where Jesus cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The third time, John chapter 12, verse 44. Just before the crucifixion, in His last week of life, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in Me does not believe in Me but in Him who sent me. Jesus cried out. Here's the problem, and here's why I'm, why I'm sitting on this for a minute. Isaiah told us Messiah would not cry out. And John tells us three times Jesus cried out. Isaiah 42, verse 2, again, He will not cry out or raise His voice or make His voice heard in the street. And He didn't. Jesus didn't cry out in the street. Jesus didn't walk up down. He's not a snake oil salesman. You know, he, he wasn't a street vendor touting his wares. He's not into marketing. This is not Jesus. Matthew even picks up on this, even quoting Isaiah 42, describing Jesus this way. Matthew 12, 15. Many followed him. He healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. Put that in your church growth seminar and smoke it. (laughs) I mean, think about that. Would you say, here's a way to grow your church. What you need to do is go out, care for people, love people, minister to people, and tell them, don't tell who did this. It's Chuck Bond's road cleanup. You know, Chuck's whole heart with that in, in the cleanup project is to go clean up and not say it's from the Bridge Christian Fellowship. You know, we don't want a sign on the road that says, this road kept clean by the Bridge Christian Fellowship. Who cleaned this road? I don't know. And again, how do you grow a church that way? But Jesus is healing people. He's miraculously touching lives. He's teaching and He's telling everybody, okay, did you enjoy today? Is your life changed? Is it different? Great. Shh. Jesus shunned self-promotion. Never cried out in the street. And as a matter of fact, the only places he ever cried out, according to the Gospel writers, is in the temple, as John points out, and at the cross. Matthew 27, 46. 
At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out from the cross. And Mark 15.34 confirms that. Matthew 27.50 tells us, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. Luke 23.46 tells us what He said. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. Get that. Jesus cried out. Not in the street. Not in the marketplace. Not online. Not in a commercial. Jesus cried out at the temple and at the cross. Jesus cried out at the two altars. The altar of the temple. The altar of the cross. Why? Because where eternity is at stake, Jesus cries out. And what does He do? He offers nothing less than His whole self. He offers... Jesus. Hebrews 10 verse 5, Therefore when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of Me to do Your will, O God. What was that will? To die on Calvary's cross to save a lost world. And so He cried out. Now with all that in mind, I just have a few questions I want to ask today as we look at at what Jesus cried out. And the first one is very simply, how did Jesus view humanity? Let's make it present. How does Jesus view humanity? Verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus views humanity as thirsty. All of humanity is thirsty. The first time Jesus spoke of living water, it was to a lone Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in Sychar. Which, by the way, reminds me that if you were the only person alive on the planet, Jesus would still offer you living water. He did to the woman. The only one at the well that day. And He said to her in John 4.10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him. And He would have given you living water. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water, this well water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Sounded good to the woman. She said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Jesus knew she was thirsty. He knew that her daily trips to the well were never enough to quench the parched throat that she had to deal with day in and day out. The well could not satisfy. Not the way Jesus could. She was thirsty. All humanity is thirsty. And so we go from one thirsty woman at the well to an entire thirsty nation holding an empty pitcher. As the priests empty out the emptiness and then cry out that God would pour out His Spirit and, the, and you know when He came. 
And Jesus said, Yup, it's me. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And even as that water libation ceremony recalled the great thirst in the wilderness, it looked to God's provision of even greater than that water from the rock. And it's so ironic. It's such a beautiful example, that water libation ceremony, because morning by morning, the water poured out as they sang songs of praise until the last morning when it was empty and it reminds us the people were still dehydrated, still thirsty, still spiritually parched in the promised land. And it blows my mind. They should have been the most satiated people on the planet. Right? The people of Israel? God's chosen ones? The people He brought out of, out of Egypt and, and he, he multiplied and provided for, disciplined, loved. Of anybody on earth, they should have just had it. They should have been drenched in the presence of the Lord. And yet, they were spiritually dry. There are several books out right now that you can read. Jonathan uh, Kahn, I think is his last name. Um, The Mystery of the Shemitah. And uh, what was the other one that just came out before that? The Isaiah Prophecy. The Harbinger. Yeah. Several books are coming out right now that are comparing modern America to ancient Israel. I find it fascinating because modern America started very much like ancient Israel started with a people called by God. Wait, what? You, really, you think so? Pilgrims? Absolutely. And modern America today looks an awful lot like Israel did in the first century. Thirsty, hungry, hurting, weary, wandering, confused. Yesterday was the annual march to Selma. President Obama led that march as the people all walked up to Selma. And he gave a speech. And I read through the speech this morning. And I found it interesting. He was talking about who we are. You know, he said, he said, we're Lewis and Clark in Sacagawea. We are the, the farmers and the ranchers who came across the land. We are the slaves who built the White House. We are. And he and was talking very inspirational. And I'm reading through that. And I said, you know what? There's one thing he left out. We are the pilgrims who came to this country looking for the freedom to worship God. That's who we are. That's who we started as. That's why Europeans came across the Atlantic in the first place. To escape the tyranny of a state church in England. That's who we are. So why are we so thirsty today? Because we have forgotten why we came here in the first place. We really don't know who we are. We, we tag all these other areas and so we end up with dry-throated protesters shouting for personal rights and protections. Looking to the government to do it. <laughs> we see parched patriots who are holding out for a better nation after the next election. Guess what? It's not going to make a difference. And then we look across the world and we see desiccated terrorists 
who kill and behead. And why do they do that? By the way, I've got this article here, what ISIS really wants. It's 43 pages. Let's just read it, shall we? (laughs) Gang, I've said this many times recently. ISIS is simply living out Islam to the T. Don't believe me? Read the article, read the Quran, check it out. They are a horribly misguided people who are so misguided that their confusion about religion and life is taking lives and killing and and it's about conquering. We are in a thirsty world. Let me get a little more personal. Behind closed doors, in personal lives, there is no drink that satisfies Another glass of wine is not going to satisfy. <clears throat> Things that we strive for in life. And you know, and perhaps you're sitting here this morning going, I'm thirsty. I'm tired. I'm parched. I'm weary. How does Jesus view humanity? Thirsty. How does Jesus, question number two, view himself? That's the more important question. Verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You come to me. Thirsty? Come to me. Now, let me make this a little more intense for you. That's not a direct quotation. You can't find that quoted anywhere in the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Well, where did the Scripture say that? It's not a direct quote. There are three places I can point you to that indicate exactly what Jesus said, but not a direct quote. Isaiah 58, verse 11. The Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give you strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. There's a reference. Or how about Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13? You guys get a bonus. I didn't share this first hour. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Wait a minute. Put that together. God called Himself the fountain of living waters that they have forsaken to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I am the fountain of living water, God says. Jeremiah 17, verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Now do you get what Jesus just said of Himself? If you're thirsty, come to Me and drink. And as the Scripture said... From His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The Lord is the living water. Jesus says, you want the living water of the Lord, you got to come through Me. I am the living water. The depth of this is profound. And it's bigger than a single verse or two or three verses. It's more than a quotation. It's an implication. Think about this. So far in the Gospel of John, Jesus has compared Himself to 
the ladder in Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder. The ladder going from heaven to earth, earth to heaven. Implying that he's the only way to get there. John chapter 1 verse 51. Jesus has described himself, compared himself to the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness. John 13, 14 and 15. So when the Jewish people who were dying of their sin would look at that bronze serpent on the pole, even as we look at Jesus on the cross, we see, we have faith, and we're saved. And Jesus compared himself to the true bread of heaven. Not manna that you eat and you die anyway, but the true bread of heaven. And if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, John chapter 6, Jesus says, (laughs) you'll live forever. And Jesus here compares Himself to the rock of living water. The Hebraic mindset, the Hebrew thinking, is not like the Western mindset, the Greek mindset. The mindset we tend to have, we tend to be more logical in thinking. The Hebrew mind is more picturesque. Much more thinking in word pictures and images. And Jesus comes along and He's giving pictures right and left. He views Himself as the divine fulfillment of all these things that happened in Israel's past. Each one a picture of the Christ. And here at the last day of the feast, at the water libation, Jesus says, all you got to do is come to Me and drink. And by the way, in verse 37... Where he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What he's literally saying in the Greek, let him keep coming to me, let him keep drinking. It's an ongoing, continual, non-stop. This is living water that never stops flowing. Jesus views humanity as thirsty. Jesus views himself as living water that never quits, never gives up, never stops in constant flow. Third question, what does Jesus offer then in Himself? The promise is twofold. Verse 37, He speaks of an instantaneous salvation. If you're thirsty, come drink. Quenched. Saved. On the spot. In verse 38, He speaks of an interminable spring. An interminable spring, a continuous, constant, upwelling, living water, a vital source, listen, a source of power that does not roll back or dry up. It's a power that finds its source in the Spirit of God. We're not going to make it on our own. We will not survive as a church fellowship or as a Christian people on our own strength. We get weary, we get tired, we get hungry, and we thirst. We need a greater power. And Paul wrote in Romans 11, verse 8, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And that is not just everyday life, that's eternal life. And I know many of you know this, but do we really know it? That the moment I give my life to Jesus, my eternal life starts right then. I've talked to you many times. You know I long for Jesus coming. I can't wait for the church to be called home, to be in His presence, to worship Him there. I think about that all the time. But my friends, my eternity is right now. It has already begun. 
It's just going to get a whole lot better when He calls me home. But right now, I've got living water. So why am I thirsty? Good question. His Spirit is living water. Listen again to the description in verse 38. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do any of your other translations say something different there? Flow rivers of living water. Just those words. What, any other translations that are different? Continuously? Can you, what, what does your say exactly, Barb? Okay, innermost being springs of, again, living water flowing continuously. That's closer. That's getting there. Understand this. This, is, this was mind-blowing for me. The Greek word flow is reo, and it means gush. It means gush. <laughs> Hayden was uh, hanging out with, with his friend Devin. They were young. They were well, ten years old at the time when this happened, and, and Devin had a big one of those big stand-up pools, and they were filling it up with water. And Hayden and Devin are standing by the pool. I think I've shared this before, but they're standing by this pool of water, and all of a sudden, Devin's kind of poking at it because his dad had had just uh, repaired part of it, and all of a sudden, it just went and broke, and it carried Hayden and Devin right down the hillside. Just a little pool, just whoosh, gush, and off they went. Completely out of their control, by the way. I think when I see the word gush, of showing up for swim team, Mission Viejo, California. I was on the swim team. Mission Viejo has produced great swimmers. I was not one of them, but I was on the swim team. And I remember showing up for practice one day. And walking up, and nobody was dressed out to swim. Nobody was going into the pool. There were people huddled here and there. And the coach came up to me and said, we're canceling practice for the rest of the week. What happened, my dad asked. One of the other coaches and his son had been swept away in a flash flood and lost. And as a child, that scared me to death. And here's why. I went home thinking about this. I always assumed that if something weird like a flash flood happened... Dad would just grab me and it'd be okay. I always looked at Dad. Dad was strong. Dad could hold it together. Dad could pick me up. Well, here's a picture of father and son washed away. And I realized in that day the power of water. When a flood comes, man, a deluge, a flood could wipe this building off the planet. You've seen the destruction of the tsunamis that have taken place in recent years. When Jesus says, out of him will gush, reo, rivers of living water. That word rivers is potamos and it's torrents. He is not using light little language here. He cries out, he who believes in me from his innermost being will gush torrents of living water. Does that describe you? Is that a picture of your spiritual life? Gushing torrents of the Spirit of God. Or is it more like a gradual trickle? I have struggled with this question my entire life, gang. 
I grew up in a church that was cessationist. That is, the work of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, ceased with the last of the apostles. And yet I saw things I couldn't explain other than the Holy Spirit at work. And I've continued to walk out this path and to keep asking for more. You know, Don Coglin, one of our shepherds, says, You can't get more. God's already given all of His Spirit. And yet I sit here going, But I want more. Well, He's already given you all of His Spirit. Yeah, but I want more. I want to be wiped out. I want to be carried off. I want to be bowled over. I want gushing torrents. In youth group when I was a kid, in the cessationist church, we used to sing, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Remember the song? Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison doors, sets the captives free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Really? Spring up a well, we would sing, and then the girls would go, splish, splash. (laughs) And I don't see Jesus going, he who comes to me will splish, splash. (laughs) And then, of course, the guys would add, she's a gusher. I mean, we add stuff to youth group songs. Really? I've got a river of life? Where is it, Lord? How come my day to day, maybe you would wonder... Looks more like a trickle than a gushing torrent. There were there were some of y'all who were a little concerned when we first got the baptistry flowing over there because it was loud, and that's cool. That's totally you know I'm not I'm not saying that you didn't have every right because you come here you want to hear teaching we're here to worship we're not here for you know so we dialed it down and all that is good, but isn't it interesting? How we want it quiet. We want it still. We don't want to get too weird. And we don't want to be too noisy. And we don't want to be too Christian. Because that would be weird. That's what those Pentecostals do. I mean, you've seen them, they roll around and stuff. (laughs) Guys glued to the wall. (laughs) And yet. I'm saying, Lord, you say gushing torrents. I want the gushing torrents of the living water of Jesus Christ. A constant, overflowing spring of His Spirit. And maybe you say, why don't I get more gush? What am I missing? I keep coming. I keep drinking. I keep believing. Let me make a suggestion to you this morning. And it's probably one of many reasons why we decrease the flow of the Spirit in our lives. But just one that stands out. Jesus exemplified a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And I've told you before, I truly believe that's why He did what He did. That's why He was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon Him. Though He was God, we look at that and go, why would He have to have the Spirit if He was already God? He's showing us something Fully man, he says, let me show you what it's like to be fully man and to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1 verse 32, John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and He remained upon Him. Jesus already had the Spirit in Him, gang. But the Spirit is now upon Him. I did not recognize Him, but He who sent me to baptize in water, John the Baptist said, 
said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Well, how did, you, how did John see the Spirit remaining on Jesus? Power. There was power there, gang. When John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus, saying, hey, are you the right one or should we look for someone else? Remember what Jesus said? The lame are walking, and the blind are seeing, and the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached. You go tell John that. The one on whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Why does Jesus describe the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what He's describing in verse 28? Why does He describe that as a spring? Because as Barb's translation says, it is continuous. It is constant. It is flowing. Without stop. What would happen if we went down to the Gihon Spring and tried to bottle it up? It'd find a way out. It would go somewhere else. But it would continue to flow. And some of us bottle up or attempt to bottle up the work of the Spirit in our lives because of self-promotion. Because of what it does for us. Because of how it makes me feel. Because of how it presents me as holy and righteous to my fellow Christians. Because they can see in me, (laughs) he's got the Spirit. Yes, he does. He's got the Spirit, what about us? I don't know. (laughs) Jesus shunned self-promotion. Every work of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, every single one was for somebody else. It was never for Him. Other than that, it brought glory to the Father and the Spirit, as we will see later on in John, the Spirit's work, primary work, is to glorify Jesus. But as Jesus walked in the flesh as a man, shunning self-promotion, He did everything to the glory of God. And so the Spirit overflowed in Him with power of healing and serving and loving and teaching and ministering to other people's lives. He was non-stop. His family said, you're nuts, you got to take a break. And Jesus is like, where are my mother and my brothers? They're right here. And He just kept flowing and flowing because that's how the Spirit is supposed to work. Jesus gushed torrents of living water. You want to see someone Spirit-filled? Look at Jesus. Nobody was more beautifully Spirit-filled than Jesus Himself. Do we think for a moment that we can contain that kind of power? See, what happens is if we try to put a lid on it, if we try to bottle up the work of the Spirit in our lives, guess what we do? We quench that work. But the water's going to flow. He'll find someone else. He'll get the job done. He always does. Chuck Smith, in his excellent book, Living Water, which I would highly recommend. In fact, outside of Scripture, it's one of my favorite books. And he talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about the gifts of the Spirit. And he talks about the, the fruit of the Spirit and all these things. But he says this in the conclusion. It's glorious that God's Spirit blesses us with joy and beauty and a deep consciousness of God. But the Lord is never satisfied with the subjective work of the Spirit within us. 
What do you mean, Chuck? He never intended that the Spirit be kept bottled up within us to bless us. That's where we get off. That's where we make the mistake. That's why we have trickle instead of torrent. Chuck Smith says his objective is always that you and I be the instruments through which the Holy Spirit might flow to the needy world around us. The greatest capacity of humanity is not being a vessel that can contain God. Rather, it's being a vessel through which God can be poured out to the world upon us. Do you know what that means? What are we then? Pitchers. We're pitchers. Not golden pitchers, but earthenware pitchers. Filled supernaturally, and here's the deal, filled supernaturally with a spring. See, a normal pitcher, when it's empty, it's empty. But we are a different kind of pitcher in Jesus. I'm a pitcher, I'm a vessel with a spring in me. So the water's always pouring out the top. Constantly. You can't get enough brawny paper towels to clean up. the. It's just constant flow. Because <laughs> there's a spring in this picture. See, and Paul describes it this way. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Then he says this, We have this treasure in earthenware vessels, pitchers, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God, it will be of God and not from ourselves. Get this picture of the picture. You all, I am, in Jesus, we are pitchers, but we're supernaturally filled with a spring that is non-stop. We don't even have to pour out because we're being poured out constantly. As the Spirit flows within us. The priest went down to the pool of Siloam. Siloam, which means the sent one. They went down to that pool, drew water out and carried it back as a picture of the work, the promised coming work of Messiah who would finally quench the thirst of Israel. But how ironic on that last day they come up thinking they have this symbol of an empty pitcher that's a glorious representation that God instead is going to fill us and what you have there is just an empty pitcher. And I truly believe that's one of the biggest problems that we have in the church today. We've got a lot of empty pitchers walking around who have denied the supernatural work, the gushing River of the Holy Spirit. My opinion. John explaining this, giving commentary on what Jesus said in verse 39 said, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The translators added that word given. Really what John said in very simple Greek language was the Spirit was not yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. He wasn't saying the Spirit was not existent because we know the Holy Spirit was existent and God working throughout the Hebrew Scriptures at different times and places. But the Holy Spirit was not yet indwelling the people of God. 
Not until Christ was glorified. So my final question for you this morning is, has Jesus been glorified? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. In His death on the cross, in His glorious resurrection, Paul says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been glorified. That being said, if Jesus has been glorified, guess what's been given? His Spirit. His Spirit. Poured out as living water. If you are living unsaved, if you are thirsty in your life, if you've never come to Jesus to drink of salvation, why not today? What are you waiting for? He promises a quenching, a flowing, a surging, a river that is never stopping. And if you are a follower of Jesus and your life has been more of a gradual trickle than a gushing torrent, come to the spring. And come to the spring. How do I do that, Rick? You know, there's no manual. We're not talking about lining up a certain way of doing things other than what Scripture says. But I invite you this morning as the prayer team comes up, and Rachel, you can come on up. As the prayer team comes up, if you have never given your life to Jesus... Come and get your thirst quenched. If you've never been baptized, we can do that today. If you have never received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if you've never, you just feel like, man, I'm just trickling here. Then come forward and pray with a brother or sister in Christ and just ask the Lord to do what He desires to do in you. And I believe that gradual trickle will start to increase. Let's pray together. Father, Your Word says I will pour out water on the thirsty and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out My Spirit on Your offspring and My blessing on Your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. And Father, all I'm asking this morning for us as a fellowship and for anyone here who desires to be so filled Father, I pray that You will cause us to spring up. And not to fear the outcome, because our Daddy, our Father, our God, is the one who's giving His Spirit. I pray You'll help us to understand these things, even as we continue in John. But this morning, Father, I pray that You'll just take off the lid. Remove whatever it is that's bottling this up. And Father, fill us for the work of the kingdom. Empower Your people to take the message of salvation to a dry and thirsty world. Have Your way here among us this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you would like to come, please do so while we sing. Oh, mm-hmm.